day. If you need a Bible, if you would hold up your hand, the ushers will place a Bible in your outstretched hand. Anybody? Pastor Jesse is taking the weekend right now. His wife left town. He's home taking care of four kids, and I think a couple of them are sick. And so, but it's always a pleasure to pinch hit and to get back in the pulpit again periodically. Just a couple things that we want to make some announcements real quickly. I'd, I had four to make, and all of a sudden I've got six to make. <laughs> We're going to do this expeditiously uh, in order of what's happening. Right between the services today, after this service and after the next service, there's a meet and greet next door for Foster the Sierras. And uh, Foster the Sierras is an incredible ministry that is preparing families to receive foster children, helping people to care for foster children, then adopt them. And uh, after the service today, they have donuts. After the service next service, you might want to come back for the second service because there's tacos after the second service. And so... Uh, My name is Zach Osnes, and I'm uh, blessed to be part of the Foster This Year's ministry. And... um, there you go. They turned me yeah, on. Yeah, turn me on. So, um, Foster the Sierras was founded by Russell and Michaela Grant, and um, it was after they went through the foster um, uh, program and adopted their children. They wanted to have a support ministry to help others um, who were going through that. So, um, one of the families that's part of the Foster the Sierras, um, they uh, took in a child who had cerebral palsy and they didn't know it. The foster um, system called them and said, hey, we're really sorry. Can you keep the kid for another few days until, um, until we can find a new placement? And they said, no, on the contrary, we intend to keep the child and adopt him. And they've since adopted his um, brother as well. And this is just, um, this is living the gospel. And um, one of the things that Foster the Sierras does is supports them, but also supplies for uh, physical needs as we can. So um, like a specialized stroller was purchased from by Foster the Sierras um, and given to the, the family. So Galatians 3, 26 and 29 is, for, um, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And if you are uh, Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So we were all adopted, unless anyone is ethnically Jewish in here, we were all adopted into uh, Christ's family. And we just think that this adoption process is such a beautiful, uh, beautiful thing. So whether you're called to give $5, $500, or just come eat donuts and tacos and learn about the ministry, uh, we'd love to see you over there. Thank you. Thank you. Next, uh, Thursday night, um, 630 SBC Trailblazers will be meeting. We have dinner, and then our speaker this time is Jeff Gilpin, a WANA missionary. And I'll tell you what, Jeff Gilpin is one of my heroes. What God has done in the life, and one of the things that's fun to be a pastor, especially over a long period of time, um, I remember when Jeff and Judy first started attending church at Sierra Bible Church. He came into my office one day, and he said, you guys sure do use the Bible a lot around here. And... uh, but to have watched him grow, he is now an Awana missionary. He covers Nevada, Northern California, and parts of Arizona. He has formed, I don't know how many Awana clubs, out in the middle of nowhere in Nevada in ranching communities. The people in Chicago, Illinois, who head up Awana are looking west and going, who is this guy? 
what is this guy doing? And you've got to come and hear his testimony. He's, he's passionate he, about the children and the ministry to the children, but he's going to be sharing from his heart with us Thursday night at uh, Trailblazers. And then this coming Saturday is the annual uh, men's ministry turkey shoot. Uh, is the sign-up sheet back out there, Al? You have the sign-up sheet? Uh, this is a fun day, and no turkeys get harmed. Uh, we're shooting at clay targets, uh, clay pigeons and paper targets, and you win frozen turkeys. They've already been harmed and, and put on ice. And uh, so that'll happen. 10 a.m. is the sign-up and registration at the upper range at Boca. There's, it's pretty easy to find. Are you going to have some signs along the road going out there, Al? Okay. And then at 11 o'clock, the competition starts. And this is for men and women and youth and families. I mean, this is a great family event. And they're just going to go out and blow a few holes in the air and, and have, have a good fun time. And, ha- and have hot dogs. And do you, you shoot those too? And uh, our range master is uh, Officer Beers. Is that true? Okay, so, <laughs> so we've got somebody that knows something about guns that's going to be showing everybody else how to do it. Hopefully. Okay. So, uh, yeah. If you want to see how turkey shooting is really done, watch the movie Sergeant York. That's turkey shooting. Okay. Angel Tree signups. Uh, we need signups for about 10 more gifts. Is that right? Where is Laurel? About 10 more? You know, this is one of, the, one of the ministries that I brought to Sierra Bible Church in 1991 when I moved here from Moab, Utah. And we have done it every single year since then. And this is one of the most incredible ministries. It is you and me purchasing a Christmas present for the child of an incarcerated parent and then delivering it to them in the name of that parent. This is crazy. The testimonies we've heard, the, the lives that have been changed just by this. And then, you know, and I encourage you, the best part of this isn't the buying, it's the delivering and seeing these families that are just, they're speechless, they're dumbfounded. Why? What, what is this? And then some incarcerated parent uh, gets to say Merry Christmas to their child through your hands. And only 10 more signups we need? We're very close. Um, last year, about 70 gifts we purchased. So it's a great thing. Sign up for Angel Tree and buy a gift for a child whose uh, parent can't be there for Christmas this year. Um, we're going to stop right there. Aaron, Aaron, get up here. This is Miss Knight in Bethlehem, and it's right around the corner.
battery must be dead. I've got a red light. So then one more quick announcement, and you'll read more about this next week. But Ann Graham is with us. And every year, Sierra Bible Church provides the fixins for the Thanksgiving luncheon at the Senior Center. And uh, there'll be more about this next week. It's going to go out in the newsletter this week. We'll get some more word. And Ann will be here today to take any sign-ups for food. And she'll be here again next Sunday. And so we'll get that done. So, all right? I hope that's it. I'm not going to ask if anybody else has anything to say because... (laughs) But we got a dead battery in this, guys, so when you get a chance. Oh, my. Isn't God good? God is good. Turn with me this morning to Galatians chapter 4. Then let us... Honor God's word together as we stand for the reading of his word. Galatians chapter 4, verse 12. Brothers, and if you notice in my Bible anyway, at the bottom it says brothers and sisters. One of your your renditions say brethren, which includes both men and women, so the ladies have not been left out. Brethren. I entreat you to become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Jesus Christ. What then has become of your blessedness. For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that they may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom am I again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you? I wish I could be present with you now and exchange my tone, for I am perplexed about you. And Father, once again, This book, over the last few weeks, has yielded up many treasures for us. I pray that it'll yield some more treasure today. That your spirit would anoint once again these lips to proclaim your word to your people. And that we may take these words into our heart that we may be transformed by them. It's always my prayer, dear Lord, that you'll speak to our hearts in some practical way that allows us application the moment our feet hit the pavement in the parking lot. Not lofty pronouncements, but practical insight that draws us ever closer to you 
and spurs us on to walk in obedience with the one who has saved us by his grace. And it's in his name we do pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the summer of 1967, a friend and I hiked into the wilderness area of Idaho's famed Salmon River, the river of no return. We hiked in there for a week of salmon fishing. One morning after we got out of our sleeping bags and had breakfast and headed down the river, we found what looked like a promising hole, and we began to cast our lines into that hole. After a period of time with no bites, we reeled in our lines to move to another spot. While we were storing our gear, another fisherman came along, looked at the hole and said, there's a fish in there. And we assured him that there wasn't. Paying no attention to us, he assembled his rod, baited his hook, and on his second cast into the hole, pulled out a 30-pound salmon. When Pastor Jesse asked me to preach today and then gave me the passage from which to preach, I looked upon this paragraph as that perceived empty hole on the Salmon River, and I said, thanks a lot, Jesse. But as I stayed with it and continued to cast into that hole, it began to yield up a harvest. And now my greatest fear this morning is that I don't have enough time to share its riches with you. I want to, I, you probably under, know this already, but I just want to point out something. Galatia, to whom this book was written, is not a city. It's a region. Corinth is a city. Ephesus is a city. Some of these other writings, uh, Colossae, Thessalonica, they were all cities. But Galatia is this... Uh, I think I got a button here that I don't know how to run this thing. There we go. No, I don't know how to run it. Galatia is this whole green area. So it's it's quite an expanse. And in the region of Galatia are the cities, or were the cities, Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium. Lystra, and Derby, And you can get a lot better understanding of what's going on here by reading the 13th and 14th chapter of the book of Acts. Because that's Paul's first missionary journey and his journey, journeying into the Galatian region coming from the yellow place there, Pamphylia. Came up and then he went over to Antioch, Pisidia, went all the way through Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and then turned around and went back. It was at Lystra that Paul was stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead. And from the text that we read this morning, we can discern that when Paul arrived in this region, he was sick. It was under these circumstances that he first proclaimed the gospel in Galatia. We know from other passages that Paul battled physical ailments. It's in 2 Corinthians 10, 
that he makes mention of what he called his thorn in the flesh. He said after he received the revelation from the Lord Jesus, a personal revelation of the gospel, to keep him from exalting himself and making himself of something above the other apostles, I was given a thorn in the flesh, he said. Some kind of physical ailment, some kind of physical malady. He prayed three times that God would remove it. And God says, no, I won't remove it, but I'll give you the grace to bear it. And then Paul said, therefore, I would rather boast in my weakness that the power of Christ may be manifested within me. And I was telling the men at the men's breakfast yesterday, you know, uh, we have not yet seen Nike or uh, Adidas or any of the great sporting companies come up with the slogan that says, uh, I am weak. (laughs) Paul said, I am weak, but it's in my weakness that I'm made strong. I am reading right now a biography of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, a man who at 21 years of age in London was speaking to crowds of thousands a man that they built a tabernacle for him to preach in that seated 6,000 people. And they filled it again and again and again. And yet, Spurgeon had a thorn in the flesh. He suffered from deep depression. And there was times he would go into a black funk in a hole and go to bed and not get out of bed for weeks on end. And then get out of bed as the sun started shining again and go to the pulpit and preach a sermon and hundreds would get saved. And yet, that thorn in the flesh dragged him. You know, as a young man preaching to thousands of people, you know, when you're 25 years old and 10,000 people are showing up to hear you preach, you know, that, that could go to your head. But it didn't because he dealt with weakness that we can only imagine. And that's what we see here with Paul. You know, some believe that Paul suffered from severe headaches, and eye problems that were a result of the blinding light that he saw on the Damascus Road in his encounter with Jesus. Thus, the phrase in this paragraph, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. This is one of the hints that some of the commentators think that eyesight and headaches and stuff like this could have been, you know, Paul's thorn in the flesh. But whatever the case was, Paul was thankful that he found refuge in his time of illness, in his time of weakness, among the citizens of Galatia, and not their disdain. And so he went on and said, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. I don't know about you, but when I read about somebody or... or you start getting familiar with them, I think that we probably all have a picture in our head of what we think maybe Paul looked like or what we think maybe Jesus looked like. Anybody? When we mention them, do you you have a picture? You know, I, I know we do. And especially our paintings of Jesus, and I think they've all missed it because the Bible says in, in Isaiah that there was nothing about him that was attractive that would have drawn us to his person, you know, You know, he wasn't taller than, shorter than, fatter than, thinner than. In fact, I asked one time, you know, we know James Caviezel starred in The Passion of the Christ. 
Well, what if Jesus looked more like Danny DeVito than James Caviezel? Come on. Said there is nothing about him that we would have been physically attracted to him. Now, when he spoke, it was a different story. And here we have the Apostle Paul. I don't know what's in your mind's eye when you think of him, but we have a description of him from from the Corinthians. And here it is. His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. So that's the description we have of the Apostle Paul. It probably is a little bit different than the picture that we have in our head. And it lets us know that Paul, in his weakness, truly was made strong by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it was through the power of the Holy Spirit when he was stammering and stuttering all over himself and his knees were knocking together that touched the lives of people, not the man Paul himself. There's nothing about Paul that's attractive. And on top of that, he shows up in the region sick. But some way or other, through God's providential care, here's the testimony. But you received me. You received me as if I was an angel from God or even if I was Jesus Christ himself. The next statement that Paul makes tears at my heart. And this is one of those places that I could regale you with story after story after story. He says this, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Why does this tear at my heart? Well, in another month I'll begin my 44th year of pastoral ministry. And during those 44 years, I've had individuals walk away from me in disdain because I attempted to hold them accountable to the truth. Individuals making a claim to faith. Some even held positions of leadership in the church. And when confronted with either an attitude or a behavior that was inconsistent with their claim to faith, They picked up their toys and they left. Often slandering me in the neighborhood as they went. And I would be in the neighborhood and hear, oh, I hear you kicked so-and-so out of the church. I'll tell you what, I've never kicked anyone out of the church. But there are some who have walked out because they did not want to be held accountable to the truth. They did not want to be held accountable to the truth. There have been others who have sought me out for counsel only to leave my office seeking out another counselor who would tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. Boy, isn't that our world today? Don't tell me. Tell me what I want to hear. Make me feel good. But Paul came back to these people and he says, here's the truth. Here's the truth. And I'll tell you what, in those places in my own life and ministry when somebody has turned their back on me with disdain because I spoke truth into their life and they did not want to hear that truth, 
There are no words to express to you this morning the pain that has filled my heart on those occasions. And my only comfort has been found in God's word to Samuel. For they have not rejected you. They rejected me. Let's back up just a little bit and remember why Paul's writing this letter. Paul came into Galatia. He preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you read about Lystra and Iconium and Derbe and Pisidia and Antioch, many people came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and were set free by the power of the cross and the word of the gospel of grace through faith in Christ. Paul is writing this letter because he left to begin other churches in other regions and the scuttlebutt, the rumors that are coming back in his direction are that these Galatian Christians have turned their back on the gospel of grace, the gospel of salvation in Christ that comes through faith alone on the basis of grace alone. In turn, they've embraced the teachings of the Judaizers, that salvation was through Christ and the keeping of the law of Moses. On top of that, Paul lets them know in this passage that the motives of these men, these Judaizers, are less than pure. And he says, they make much of you. They're fussing over them and making much of them. But for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. Shut them out of what? Shut them out of the grace of God that, they may, that you may make much of them. There's no servant's heart here. There's a power play going on here. Eugene Peterson, out of the message, the same passage says, those heretical teachers go to great lengths to flatter you, but their motives are rotten. They want to shut you out of the free world of God's grace so that you will always depend on them for approval and direction, making them feel important. This was not only a concern in this letter. When Paul wrote to Titus, he said, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. These are the Judaizers. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Some of your translations say sordid gain. One of the admonitions to the elders from Peter in 1 Peter was, shepherd the flock of God among you, and not for sordid gain. Not for what's in it for me. Jesus tells the story of a hired hand who's watching some sheep, and he displays him as a hireling, and then he contrasts it with a good shepherd. He said a hireling who's just been hired to watch the sheep, when the bear or the lion or the wolf comes and the sheep are in danger, he's going to say in his heart, they're not mine, and over the hill he goes, where the good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. These guys are hirelings. They are doing it for their own sordid gain. They are doing it in a way that they can lord it over the individuals of whom they are taking advantage. 
Believe me when I tell you the Judaizers are still among us. There are many corridors where spiritual abuse is rampant. Where those in authority seduce the unsuspecting and ignorant and then rule over them with a heavy hand. Back during the Jesus movement of the late 60s and early 70s, there were a lot of Christian communes that started up. And the leaders of these communes would, would draw these, these innocent, unsuspecting people, and they had some kind of gift of leadership, and they were articulate, and they were charismatic, and so people began to follow them. But we were familiar with one group that when you cashed your paycheck, they, they looked in the book of Acts and said everybody was bringing everything to the apostles. And so they required that you bring your paycheck to the pastor and the elders. And then they would dole back out to you what was necessary to pay your bills and what they deemed was necessary for you to buy some clothing and food. And your car became the car of the, of the commune and anybody could use it at any time when it was sitting there. And you know what? These things kind of tend to lead to abuse. They tend to get out of hand. And you know those, those guys at the head are, are doing rather well with everything ignorant and misguided people are trusting into their care. And this goes on in many, many ways, even in our day and age. Recently, a well-known pastor from one of America's largest churches was removed from his pastorate. This week, Christianity Today published some of the details surrounding his dismissal. I will not mention names to protect the guilty, but here's what Christianity Today wrote, and I quote, The elders of this church have concluded that their pastor is basically disqualified from ministry and can never return to leadership at this congregation. A church investigation has found that he failed to meet the qualifications of an elder as laid out in Scripture, they attested he instead had a pattern of being disruptive, insulting, belittling, and verbally bullying others, improperly exercising positional and spiritual authority and extravagant spending and utilizing church resources resulting in his own personal benefit. I read something like that and my heart aches. I read something like that and I want to weep. Because sitting under such people are people who genuinely came and genuinely submitted and genuinely surrendered. And over my 44 years of pastoral ministry, I, I don't have enough fingers on these hands to tell you of the men that I know that were personal friends and the men in the ministry who for one reason or another have been removed from their ministries because... You see, power is seductive. Power is very seductive. Three things tend to bring leaders down. Money, sex, and power. And the leaders in the Christian church are not exempt. And there are leaders who are trying their best to convince the people that were for you that they're really against you. And they're padding their own pockets, they're padding their own egos, they're padding their own positions at the expense of other people. 
I sat as a youth pastor under a pastor that at a board meeting when the elders would meet and he would lay out some visionary thing, especially some visionary thing that was going to cost a lot of money that we didn't have, and they would question, he would belittle the elders as men of no faith. And I remember one day locking up the church after I finished on a Sunday morning and and there was the pastor and the chairman of the board of elders standing in an aisle ready to go to Fist City as they were screaming at one another and you know the one who was calling the other one unspiritual should have had a mirror to have gazed in that day. He led that church into deep, deep debt. And that church eventually split and then split and then split. And today there's a school in the building, but not a church. You see, the Judaizers are still among us. They may not be saying, well, now it's Jesus and, and Jesus this and Jesus that. But armed with the power that they now have, they become those that, what did this testimony say? Insulting, belittling, verbally bullying, improperly exercising spiritual authority. Money, sex, and power. The big three that bring leaders down time and time and time again. And know this, my friends, the Christian church is not exempt And this is why you have been encouraged under my 27 years as your senior pastor that when the word that starts coming out of this pulpit isn't isn't, uh, lining up with the word that comes out of this book, throw the man in the pulpit out and keep the book. But the sad part is, is, and I, I realized this many, many years ago, Once a pastor has been in position for a long, long time and and earns the trust of a congregation, he, he can start going sideways in little incremental ways and nobody picks up on it because, well, that can't be that because he's this. And we've come to trust him. No, you trust the word. And you make sure that the word that comes out of this pulpit, whether it's from Pastor Jesse or whether it's from me or whether it's some of the other staff members or whether it's from some of the elders, that it lines up with the book Because that is the only place that we will be safe. And that is the only place we'll have the power to discern when the Judaizers are in our midst. At the end of this passage, Paul makes a very vivid metaphor. When he originally brought these Galatian believers to Christ, he likened it to a woman in travail. He likened it to a woman giving birth. And he says something here, and now, once again, he's experiencing the pain of labor all over again. Now, usually when a woman has a baby, she only experiences the pain of labor with that one baby one time. Right? Paul is saying here, I gave birth to you in pain and travail, and I'm birthing you again with pain and travail. And one of the terms that Paul uses here that he doesn't use in any of the rest of his writings, though the Apostle John was very fond of this term, and it's the term little children. 
The term, my little children, shows the compassion that fills Paul's heart, even though he's trying to understand where and why and how they're doing what they're doing. His heart is full of love and compassion for the confused and for the deceived Galatians that have been sucked in by the tentacles of the Judaizers. And if you notice in this passage, Paul does not scold with bitter words here, but he comes and he appeals. He appeals to them through the same grace that he first preached to them. He appeals to them to look at at, at what they had been taught under Paul and to lay it alongside of what they're now being taught by the Judaizers. And he's appealing to them that they will be free from the deception, that they'll be free from the lies that the Judaizers are bringing upon them. When Paul wrote to his young disciple, Pastor Timothy, he exhorted him, when there are those who come up in opposition against you, gently correct them. Gently correct them. It is said of the missionary teacher Florence Alshorn, that if she ever had cause to rebuke one of her students, she did it with her arm around their shoulder. And over the years I have found that appeals couched in love are able to penetrate where words of anger will never find a way. Appealing in love. Healing. Years ago when I pastored Moab Christian Center in Moab, Utah, there was a little 80-year-old Nazarene minister from Grand Junction who had family in our church and he periodically would visit and periodically I would ask old George Drake if he'd preach for me. George had spent a, a lifetime pastoring little Nazarene churches up and down the eastern slope of the rock or the western slope of the Rockies between Gunnison and Durango and Grand Junction and most of them little ranching communities where, you know, if you had a half a dozen in the seats on Sunday morning, bivocational his whole life, I don't think he ever drew a paycheck for proclaiming the word of God. If George was standing in this pulpit today, all you would see is his head. He was just a little guy. And his voice was very quiet. I remember every time he would speak, we'd be turning up the the guy in the sound booth would be turning up the sound and it's right on the brink of feeding back because it's being turned up too loud. And little old white-haired George Drake would get into the pulpit and he'd grab the sides of that pulpit. And I never heard him preach. I heard him appeal from the heart of God. Do you see what God's Word says today? And if this is true and... And, and I'm as convinced as I'm here that it is. As a child of God, do you have any choice but to respond to that call that is couched in grace and love? And I'll tell you what, there was never a time that George preached at our church that the altar rails were not full of people on their face before God as he just appealed God's heart to God's people. And you see, as Christians, rather than winning the argument, and that's what we like to do at times, we like to win the argument. 
God hasn't called you to win the argument. He's called you to appeal the cause of the gospel. The life of the one who came from heaven to earth in the form of a man, perfectly kept the law of God, laid down that perfect life as a sacrifice for the likes of you and me that could not and still cannot keep that law and offer up that sinless life so that now we get to trade in our rags of of sin for a robe of righteousness. Because he that became... He became sin on your behalf and my behalf that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ. It's not going out and and appealing with a finger up somebody's nose and your Bible waving over their head. It's coming appealing the cause of Jesus. Here Paul appeals to his little children, even though he's perplexed. Isn't that interesting? I mean, look at that last line. I wish I could be present with you. I wish I could change my tone here, but I am perplexed about you. Paul appeals to his little children, even though he's perplexed by their behavior, and the promise of this paragraph is he will continue to appeal until Christ is truly formed them. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, as I walked and talked with you this morning, going once again through these passages, kind of a different paragraph hanging out here in the middle of Galatians. It doesn't have any stories in it. it. doesn't have any stories that we can take and then figure out how to apply it to our lives in 2019, Truckee, California. There's no doctrine laid out here that we can expound on. But there are some little tidbits here that give us insight into both the life of the Apostle Paul and the people at Galatia, how they received him in illness, how he brought forth the gospel to them when he was bodily uh, struggling and suffering. The testimony that their kindness to him was was as if they received Jesus himself and they had to gouge out their own eyes if he would have needed them. And then he, he just appeals and says, hey, these guys that are telling you the stuff they're telling you. They're not doing it for your good. They're wanting to make something of themselves. And sadly to say, dear Lord, we still live in this world and power brokers can go south out in the world. Power brokers can go south even in your church. And oh Lord, I pray that you'll continue to rise up, raise up for this people leadership that will be servant leaders. Not in this for sordid gain, but laying down their lives for the sheep. True shepherds, not hirelings, who will love on the little children who are your flock and bring them to a place of maturity. Speaking the truth, 
even though there will be times that we speak that truth and it will be, for lack of a better word, thrown back into our face. Somebody may turn on their heels and leave because they're not that committed to the truth. They're committed to their own comfort. They're committed to their own convenience. They're committed to their own way of seeing things. Protect your church from such. And Lord, keep the leadership of this church humble, I pray. That we too have received a gift we did not earn. We too have received a gift we did not receive. Through the grace of Jesus Christ. Through faith. It's in his name we pray.